This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Hey, I need a favor from you listeners. I need to tap your network. If you know anyone who is really good with numbers, interested in accounting, bookkeeping, finance, has a little bit of experience in that stuff, but they're not happy with their current career prospects, whether they're in a job or they're looking at the job market, whether they have a degree or they don't have a degree, if they're good at that kind of stuff and they're not really excited about their career prospects, I want you to send them to isaac.ceteris.com. I want you to send them there to check out Ceteris, which is an amazing opportunity to join a fast-growing startup and help small businesses. What Ceteris does is they help small businesses. They automate their accounting and bookkeeping processes for them, and it is an amazing team over there at Ceteris. So if you know somebody who needs a job that they love, that they can sink their teeth into, that has meaning and is interesting and flexible and dynamic, and they've got that kind of number skill set, send them to isaac.ceteris.com. Thanks for your help. Friend of years and a friend of tears. <laughs> what kind of voice is that? Dude, you know the movie Hoosiers, right? Man, you know what? I, Don't I might tell have seen. Me. Don't tell me. All right, look. What's the greatest <laughs> basketball movie you've ever seen? Uh, Love and Basketball with Omar Epps. Okay, of course you would say that because it's like got the romantic part in it. No, look. I, I said that for Derek's black movie, PDP. Hoosiers is to white guys what Love and Basketball is to black guys. It's <laughs> I don't like think, Hoosiers I don't think is black... our basketball movie. <laughs> So on behalf of black guys everywhere who would all be ready to kill me right now, I don't think love and basketball no, is. No, can't be. What, what would it be like? Uh, he got game. Um, he got game is up there, but I would say it, it would have to be above the rim. Above the rim. Okay, I've never seen that. I remember white man can't jump. I thought yeah, that was pretty cool. Above the rim, uh, I believe. Um, I think Tupac might have been in there above the rim. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, Dwayne. Ah. Uh, uh, I, I forget some of the actors' names now. I think I think it was Dwayne Martin, but yeah, above of the above the rim is an old school classic uh, hoop movie. Look, but hey, man, you, you know gotta what? Watch, you know what? You gotta watch Hoosiers. I'm gonna give you I, a white people a white movie PDP. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's gonna have Hoosiers, uh, American Beauty. Uh, when, Har when Harry met Sally, the English <laughs> oh, patient. God, we already did Top Gun, so you got that one covered. Everything with Morgan Freeman in it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, basically look for Morgan, <laughs> Morgan Freeman. <laughs> I love that uh, Tracy Morgan said that uh, he was like, white people steal everything. He was like, now they stole Will Smith from us. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, just today, I was thinking about, there are certain rap songs that the lyrics are always in my head. And most of them are great songs, like Hypnotized by B.I.G., um, I Ain't Mad At You by uh, Tupac. But for some reason, that stupid song Miami by Will Smith is always stuck in my head. <laughs> okay, man. So you know what? Michelle and I were just talking about this the other day because we were, we were at the Willie bar. Style watching... was a legit album, all right? It, it, it was a legit album. But we were talking about this. Like every time uh, uh, an athlete goes back to his old hometown, 
they play that song, I'm coming home, I'm coming home, or anybody wins the World Series or the finals, they play, we are the champions. Do you think people deliberately create those kinds of songs as a great marketing tool? Like, did Will Smith say, if I make the anthem for Miami, this will live forever? No question. No, this is something that I've always, I've always loved this concept of to get a hit song, you got to just have like a catchy hook and some stuff. I mean, it's not like it's easy, but you need to pick something Something that no one else has written about, so it's kind of unique enough, but that it's niche enough that once you write it once, it will forever be played associated with that. So like that stupid John Fogarty song, Center Field, like it's a song about playing center field. So you know it's going to get played every time that context has any meaning whatsoever. So this is like the Scott Adams approach, the creator of Dilbert. He talked about this on the Tim Ferriss podcast that every day he would write another comic and he would think about what's some group that's big enough that it will have a huge impact if they love my comic for today, but small enough that I can be assured absolute market dominance in that niche. So if you write a comic about uh, female HR directors, you're probably talking about 100,000 people, 20,000 people, I don't know how many, a pretty small market. But it's big enough, that's a pretty big difference if that many people share it. And you know, no one writes things specific to them. So if you write a comic strip about them, they're all going to share it with each other. It's like wildfire. So you got to think of stuff like that. Like as well, all these songs like, you know, stupid stuff about whatever, uh, red solo cups, you know, which people use at parties like, oh, there's a song about it. So now it's always going to be used associated with that. You got to find something. So I'm always trying to think of like semi-obscure events but ones that a huge number of people also experience that you, that I can write, you know, some sort of song about. So I don't know, like, uh, you know, the, uh, I have a stomach ache during my bar mitzvah song, or I don't know, something that a few people have experienced a big enough group to make it popular, but a small enough group that, that nobody else writes about them. Just win something or do anything positive for the city of Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> World Series champions. Oh, dude. And I cannot tell you. So this is the first of our new format. So we're recording this on November 4th, Friday. It's not going to be released until a week from Monday because I've already got one in the queue for Monday. So Monday, November 14th. But so by then, maybe to most people, it will be old news. It will never be old news to me. Cubs win, baby. Cubs win, you know? You cannot, you cannot ever, the, the universe is a different place. Now I woke up with a spring in my step after that game. I'm going to be feeling good for at least the next 365 days. And I can't say how long this will last or to use your favorite word. I can't say how sustainable this feeling is, but, um, I feel like I'm, I just feel complete. I feel like I can do without watching the NBA this year. I feel happy and satisfied and I just think I might want to get season tickets to baseball games and just watch the games now and talk to the people in the stands and be detached from the outcome and just relax and enjoy my life. I I can ride out into the sunset. You have become genuinely an old man now because now you'll be watching baseball, but it will be very dispassionately. And you'll be like trying to finagle everyone next to you that you can possibly get their ear and be like, you know, I remember in the in the 16 series. I remember watching that series, you know, David Ross came up to bat after he took one to the mask and he hit a solo home run. I'll never forget that day. And people are like, why are you still talking about this? That you're going to be that guy. So that is, that is literally who my dad is now. Um, game seven, <laughs> it, it, it went extra innings, right? And you know how at the end of the night, I mean, we've got an intense 
dramatic game that you couldn't have even scripted. And it, you have the rain delay after the ninth inning. So Michelle and I are riding home from the bar after watching the game, and I'm just calling everybody I know from Chicago and all that stuff. And so I call my dad, and Michelle says, you're calling dad? And I say, yeah, yeah, the, the, the Cubs won. And she goes, he's asleep. He's not going to be up this late watching the Cubs. I'm like, it's game seven, extra innings. He is up. And I call, and my dad's like, hey. And I said, dad, dad, did you see this? Did you see this? He goes, oh, uh, Cubs? And I go, yeah. He goes, they got it, man. And I said, yeah. He goes, oh, man, that's great. That's great. <laughs> that's great, and I said, Doc. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I said, like, in theory, right? It's great in theory. And I said, you didn't watch it? He goes, well, I watched it. But then once they had the rain delay in the night, I just said, I'm going to bed. And I just said a prayer that it would be a good game and that whoever win, that, you know, everybody was happy and, and no that they were grateful. Injured. <laughs> yeah, right. I was like, you're just happy that both teams played hard and no one got hurt. Oh, man. He's probably like praying for the, the families of the, the players on Cleveland right now. Speaking of the injury thing, so I've been in some some church league softball uh, before where it's like, you know, all the teams are different churches, which is always a better option because if you go straight up into the city league, you're playing against these dudes who just like destroy you. But the church league, it's always a mix. There's always a couple good guys, but then a lot of other guys who just, you know, like it's part of the ministry. They got it. So it's not as competitive, which is great. Cause then it gives me a chance to you know, actually, <laughs> actually compete, but there's always some super intense people. And, and these church leagues, usually after the game, you circle up around the mound, both teams and you say a prayer and uh, the prayer circle in church league softball is sometimes used for passive aggressive prayers. It's absolutely amazing. So the typical is like, God, just thank you that we all had a great time out here and that nobody got injured and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Amen. Well, there are some times where it's like, I've genuinely heard these post church league softball prayers where someone's like, Father God, I just thank you that some of us were able to keep good attitudes despite sometimes not everybody having a good attitude and like, <laughs> you know, sometimes circumstances come your way and people try to play dirty, but I thank you that you helped us rise above that. <laughs> like praying <this> <laughs> standing there. Oh man, that's absolutely amazing. So I hope your dad's prayer was like, God bless the Cubs, despite how awful the city of Cleveland is and how they have turned from you in all their ways. <laughs> Man, I, I just thank God that I'm too humble to say prayers like that. <laughs> hey, man, so speaking of parents, I just thought this was funny. My, my mom, who's our uh, most dedicated listener, she was like, after last, last What's episode, up, mom? she was like, I love that episode. It was really good. It seemed different. I go, well, what do you mean? How was it different? She goes, I don't know. It seemed like you were nicer to, T to TK. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, we're going to have to correct that if that's true. <laughs> we we got to bring the that's racist button back. Yeah. I just thought that was the funniest comment. Hey, so Dude, that's awesome. I want, I want to get into some different stuff today, but well, one thing I want to talk about something that's been grinding my gears um, this week, and that will be a good segue into getting some more tools from TK's toolbox um, in terms of how to improve certain things. So I kept thinking of this phrase, just we, we were hiring again at Praxis. So we have this, this job description out for a placement specialist. And I've had a lot of people say that they're interested in the job. And the way that most people have approached it 
I, the only thing I can think of is a phrase that you use all the time. I feel like everyone is immediately arguing for their limitations. And here's what I mean. So you post this job posting and it says, here's the job, here's the description, here's what it's all about. It's located in Charleston, blah, 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 blah. Okay, here's how you apply. Email Zach Slayback, your pitch deck and a two minute video. Very, very clear. So the majority of inquiries are, hey man, I saw that job posting. Do you think it could be a good fit for someone like me? Okay, well that's that's just like sort of weird and sort of weak. Um, I mean, apply first and then say, hey, I applied for that job. Any thoughts, any additional details? Maybe we could talk about it. But like, you haven't applied, you haven't gone any distance at all and now you're, you're imposing a cost on me. You're asking me to describe to you what's already been described in a post and you're just sort of like very weakly, could it be a good fit for me? Like, what do you mean? You tell me. The job description's there. Do you think it'd be a good fit? Okay, but that's that's level one. That's a little bit annoying. But the next one, and this is really common. Hey, I saw that job posting. I'm really interested. Um, does it have to be in Charleston? Could I be remote? Or, hey, uh, what's the pay range? Because I need to make X. Is that possible? And all I can think is, what are you doing? You're submarining yourself. You're arguing for your limitations. I feel like this is how most people approach jobs. So that looks really interesting, but I can't move there. I have to make this much. Would it involve this? Would it involve that? And before they even apply, they're looking, they're going down a list and looking for all the reasons to disqualify themselves for this job, which is completely backwards. Because if you just ask me in the abstract, is it remote? How much does it pay? Would it let me do this? Would it let me do this? I'm just going to be like, it's how I described it. And they're going to say, oh, well, I guess that's not me. Bummer which is so absurd to me. They're looking for excuses to eliminate themselves from the pool. If the job is genuinely interesting to you and if you think it fits you, you shouldn't care at all about where it's located, what the pay range is, any of those things. You shouldn't be looking for reasons that it might not meet your circumstance. If it seems motivating, it seems like a job you'd love, apply, impress the heck out of us, make us say, oh my gosh, this person's amazing. And then if we actually say, we want you, we can't live without you, now you can say, hey, I do too, but for this to work, I'm gonna have to be able to do it remotely. Or hey, for this to work, this is my pay. Now we can say no if we get to that point, but at that point, we've got some reason to even be willing to discuss it. And you've got a reason to even consider what are the terms you're willing to negotiate on. But until you've gotten in there and earned anything by showing some, some value that you can do by making us say, whoa, we're impressed, you're just eliminating yourself prematurely from the pool. I've had people be like, so this isn't remote? And I'll just say no. And they'll say, bummer, it sounds so cool. And go away dejected. And it's like, well, <laughs> I mean, anything's possible. When, when, I, when I took a, a job at IHS, Heather and I wanted to get out of Michigan. We knew that. We did not want to live in Washington, D.C. at all. And we knew it was really expensive and I'd have to make significantly more there to have a standard of living that we wanted than what I was making before. And it's like, okay, well, I don't really want to live in that city. I would love to be able to work remotely. I need to make a lot of money if, I'm, if I am going to live in that city. I wonder if they're willing to pay me this much. I didn't bring any of those things up. I applied for a job that sounded interesting and I was like, I want to impress them. And they really wanted me. And I could tell, I didn't ask, but I could tell just by looking around the organization that I was not going to get a job as a new hire if I said I have to work remotely. They wanted me there. And so instead, I, I chose to negotiate on pay to get an amount of pay that would mean that we could even make a little bit more, even factoring in cost of living. And I did it. And I went in with the goal of we gave ourselves a three-year time limit. I am going to prove myself so valuable 
that this organization for the first time, they'd had remote workers and they'd always said it didn't work and they didn't like it, that they're going to be completely fine with me working remote. So I went in there and in two years, I, I did what I think was really great work, made myself really valuable. And even then I didn't ask because that would have eliminated it to say, hey, can I work remotely? They would have said no. So instead I said, hey, we can't stay in DC. We're having another kid. I'm looking at houses in other cities. So I'm still going to be able to do my job and everything, but I just want to give you a heads up. And they were like, oh, uh, okay, well, I guess we can talk about that. And then I'd be like, hey, um, the house is on the market now that we're living in our, our rented house. Uh, so now I'm looking in Charleston. We're probably going to get something down there in the next month. Oh, okay, well, we'll have to talk about that. And we never actually did talk about it because they didn't want to lose me at that point. They would rather have had me stay there, but they knew that I had made up my mind. And if they said, no, you can't do that, I probably would have quit. And they didn't want to take that chance because I had proven that value. So I think that approach is so powerful, but I think oftentimes people approach things like a job looking for reasons to disqualify themselves for these various opportunities. Wow, that looks really cool. Too bad I'm stuck here in Colorado. It, you know, like that's the typical approach. Why not go after it? I mean, apply for things, whether the pay range or the whatever components of it aren't right. Oh, well, I need a certain kind of benefits and this won't work, blah, 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 blah. You don't know. Get in there. And if they want you bad enough, when people post a job description, they're posting what they think they can get combined with what they think they want. But if you go in the mindset, dude, I'm a killer. I'm going to dominate this role. This is what they think they want. I'm going to give them that. I'm going to give them a lot more that they never even expected. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to so wow them. They'll be willing to bend any rule for me. That's the approach you have to take. It may or may not work, but why not do that? So why argue for your limitations? Why argue for the reasons that you're not going to be able to have this job? Hey, can you accommodate all my preferences? You know, before you've even tried, that was just sticking in my cross. So I thought it'd be a good kickoff for how to overcome that kind of mindset. All right. So what would you say to the person who's listening to this and they say, all right, yeah, I want to do that. That sounds like a cool technique, but I don't want to come off as dishonest. I don't want people feeling like I hoodwinked them, like I misrepresented myself. And then once they offer me the job, ha ha, surprise, I can't move to Minnesota where the position is. No, I think that's nonsense because I think if the job is compelling enough, you need to know that both parties, if you just see a posting and you're like, wow, that's really cool, but I don't think I can move. If you apply and you get in and you get to the point of interviews and whatever, and you find out it's so cool, you actually are willing to move, your mind might change too, right? And, and if they find out that you're so awesome, they might be willing to, their mind might change. I think that's completely fair game. I don't think you go in and lie. I don't think you say, I'm totally ready and willing to move to Charleston. And then later when an offer's made, be like, I can't move to Charleston. That'd be ridiculous. But just right, go so in and focus on the job. Be like, here's what I would do for you. Boom, boom, boom. And make them start salivating over you. And if they're salivating at any point when they say, so are you willing to move to Charleston? Say something like, let's defer that. Let's talk about that later. I want to talk about the job first and put it off until it's like, yeah, they want you. And then say, okay, if we're going to go forward at some point, there's going to be a point where you don't move any further forward until you establish that. But why immediately be like, I just feel like before you've even applied, it just seems so stupid to me. Like you're just looking for reasons to not do the work and apply. And I'm not just talking about this job. I'm talking about in general. I mean, we get this with practice applications. I've seen this every time I've hired people are like, Hey, do you think that job could be a fit for me? Cause I really like X, Y, and Z. And I'm just like, well, if you're asking me, I can tell you're just trying to eliminate yourself from the pool. So you might as well not apply. But if, if you seriously think it's intriguing, apply first, you know, give yourself more possibilities, not fewer.
you know, my, my dad would always tell me that the, the goal is to get yourself in a position where you can exercise influence. And when you're at the level of the resume, you're in the weakest position. Just get in front of them because no matter what the rules are, no matter what the standards are, once you find a way to get in front of a person or get on the phone with them, you have the opportunity to sell them. So one favorite story of mine is, you, you see examples of this in Hollywood all the time, is the movie Philadelphia with Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington. So. The role played by Denzel Washington. Did that go on the white people movie PDP list or the black movie PDP list? Man, this is a tough one because you have like two <laughs> Academy Award winning heavyweights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a USA. We're all united playlist. Um, so for this role, Den the, the role that Denzel played was actually written for a white person. Now, that's not a conspiracy theory. That's something that the actual director of the movie admits. And when 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 Denzel first you know got a hold of the script and talked with him about the role, he really loved Denzel's interpretation of the character, and he loved his spin on it. And it made him start negotiating and think, okay, does this character have to be white? I know I wrote it for a white person, but that was just kind of like sort of a lazy thing or an assumption. I just, you know, kind of, that's just how I saw it in my imagination. But now that Denzel Washington is here and is giving me all these great ideas for the part, I have to rethink this. And he rethought it and he ended up casting Denzel in that role. And it's one of his more memorable roles. And you see stories like this all the time where a role was originally written for Will Smith or Keanu Reeves, or it was originally written for Tom Hanks. And, and for whatever reason, someone came to the audition and they blew everyone away and they gave them a different image of how it can look. And I think all too often we have the, the tendency to look at rules and standards and protocol as if they come down from God on high and as if they are absolute expressions of the perfect ideal, when in reality, most rules are just one individual's best approximation at that time of what they're looking for, but because they don't know more, they don't know how to tell you how to negotiate. So they just say, all right, here's what I'm looking for, but they're totally open to more. I, I applied for a job when I was living in Michigan at a youth theater, and this was during a time where I was teaching a lot of courses and improvisation and a lot of workshops on, on creativity. And one of my professors from school said, hey, I think this will be a great position for you. Now, there is a minimum requirement of a bachelor's degree in theater, and you don't have that, but I think you'd be great for it. So just try to get in. And once you get in front of them, maybe you can sell them. And I said, all right, let, let me try. So I, I put in an application. I didn't lie and say I had a bachelor's degree in theater. I just disregarded the fact that they said don't apply if you if you lack that. I mean, my, my philosophy was, what are they going to do? They're not going to lock me in jail for not having a bachelor's degree in, in theater. They will just ignore it at worst. So I went ahead and I applied and I got an interview. And once I got in front of them and was able to talk with them and they were able to see me work with the kids, they loved my performance and they loved my performance so much. They said, we want to work with you. And I think too many people underestimate the power of that. We have too much faith in other people's rules and not enough faith in our ability to sell people on other possibilities. And the, the funniest thing about this is that People want to be sold on other possibilities. Yes. People want you to have better ideas for how they can get what they're looking for. 
Yeah, you know, if you would have emailed or called them and said, hey, um, I saw this role needs a bachelor's. I don't have that. Um, is that okay? They probably would have said, no, I'm sorry. But just the act of applying itself shows that you've invested at least something. When someone comes and says, hey, should I apply to this or do I not meet the criteria? They've already, they've already basically cashed in social capital they didn't have. They're already asking you something. They're kind of asking for a favor. Can you fudge the rules, whatever? Show that you've taken initiative and apply first. That just makes such a big difference. Don't ask if you can, just do it. You know, um, the, the thing with, yeah, three years experience or need a degree in this. You can never assume that people, what it sounds like they're asking for at face value, that's not what they really want. What they really want is someone who will create value for me and solve a particular set of problems that I have. That's what they want. Now, they don't know any better than you do what the ideal person needs in order to fit that. They're using some guesses based on past experience, based on what they've seen other people do. Sometimes they haven't really thought about it at all. They're just doing what other job postings do. Sometimes they've thought about it and they have extensive reasons for wanting certain traits, but you don't know and they really don't know either. So you have to ask yourself, what do they really want? They want someone who will create more value than they cost and, and solve particular problems that they're facing right now. And if you're like, hey, they don't even know. I'm a killer. I'm going to crush it. They have no idea the best way to go about doing this role. I do. I'm going to show them it's going to be amazing. They're going to be blown away. Go at so it. They'll love that. They'll love that, you know? Yeah, so check this out. I, I've got a friend who said he went to Radio Shack to buy some headphones, and the uh, the, the um, sales clerk uh, approached him and said, can I help you with anything? And he says, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for some headphones. Uh, I prefer to stay within the budget of something that's between 10 to $20. And she said, okay, let's, let's take a look at some uh, options I have over here. And she walked him over to the headphones and, and she said, now, if I can ask, uh, is there a reason why you want to stay in that budget? And he says, sure. Well, I travel a lot and I lose my headphones a lot or, you know, they have a pretty short shelf life. And since I'm constantly replacing them every few months or so, I don't want to buy anything expensive. And she says, that makes sense. And she's showing him the headphones that he requested to see. And she said, so if you're interested, I actually have a set of headphones that are pretty difficult to lose. There are lots of easy ways you could store them. You could hang them around your neck. They're also Bluetooth and they actually can hook into your phone. And, and she says, and, uh, and they're pretty durable and they also come with the warranty. So if at any point anything happens to them within a year, you can replace them free of cost. Would you be interested in seeing something like that? And he said, okay, I'll take a look. And she walks him over to this pair of headphones that cost $120 and she has him put them on. She says, put these on and she plays a little music for them. And she, and she says, do you, do you see the quality of sound there? And she began to explain, you know, the quality of sound. And he says, I, I really like this. And she said, well, let me show you something. You, you see, you can put them around your neck like this, but here's another way. And she folded them up. And she took out a little bag and she says, you can fold them up just like this. And they're really compact. You can put them in this little easy to carry bag. You can carry that around or you can throw that in the book bag that you or the suitcase or anything like that. And, and by the time she got through talking with him, he says, wow, I love this. And even though he came in the store to only buy a $20 pair of headphones, he ended up paying $120 and he was really glad that she sold him on it. Now, a lot of people, you put them in that situation They'll think to themselves, well, I, I don't want to be disrespectful to this guy, and he said that he wants something for under $20, and I don't want to try to manipulate him, and I don't want to you know, uh, challenge what he said, but you have to listen to what people are saying 
beyond the literal words they're using he, because he words in, he came in to solve a problem and he didn't know what words he thought he had narrowed the solution down but you got to figure out what the problem is because the solution they want to buy may or may not be the right one you got to figure out what problem they're trying to solve exactly and you have to be confident enough in what you know to understand that people's vocabulary of what the options are might be more limited than yours if they knew what all the options were they wouldn't be out looking the fact that they are out looking shows that there's still some uncertainty in, in, in knowing what's out there. One of our Praxis participants, Mitchell Broderick, talked about this in an interview that him and I did. He said it took him a while to get over it, but he had to start realizing that when people come into the store, they want to be sold something. No one ever walks into a store thinking to themselves, I sure hope I see nothing worth buying. No one walks into a store unless wanting I'm, to be unless disappointed. Unless I'm going, uh, just traveling along with my wife. <laughs> right. I hope I she hope. sees nothing worth buying. Yes, I hope everything in here is crap. <laughs> Women be shopping. <laughs> oh, man, I'm sorry, Karen. I, I, I know you're listening to this. I'm so sorry. But, but, you know, when people walk into a store, man, it's like they want to see something that they like. They want to be sold on something, and you got to be willing to do it. And that same principle applies to every area of life. No, people don't want their arms twisted. No, people don't want to be manipulated and lied to. No, they don't want to be used. But what they do want is to be satisfied. And if you can listen and read between the lines well enough to understand how people want to be satisfied, they will always be happy to see you coming when you tell them that you can get them what they want at a cheaper cost or at a faster rate or in a more pleasant way. So let's get to, cause there's, there's a couple reasons why this happens. One is I think just lack of information. People sort of don't realize, oh, you can approach it that way. Oh, you're a lot. It's, it's not a hard and fast rule. You can approach it and say, let me, let me argue for my possibilities. And let me say, this is what you think you're hiring for, but let me tell you why you want to hire me. And it's going to look a little different. It's not just the absence of that information. And they're just sort of like, Oh, I was told you just apply to jobs that the description perfectly fits, blah, blah, blah. That's part of it. But I think there's something deeper going on oftentimes too. I think there's a psychological set of reasons that makes us more prone to argue for our limitations, to remove ourselves from the, the potential opportunity or the pool of options early because there's some kind of fear in there. You know, there's some kind of, well, I mean, we saw this, this could be our, our Facebook heroes segment. We saw, uh, one of our colleagues shared with us, you know, a posting about how you can go out and get any job you want by working for free and creating value. And he's giving all these examples of people who've done it, of tips, how to do it, blah, blah, blah. And of course, like we always see one of the commenters is like, yeah, nice. Try doing that where I live. Doesn't work. This, 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 and this, right? There's this psychological tendency. If someone says, Hey, here's a possibility for you to want to immediately rush to all the reasons why that won't work, because it's like, there's a fear of trying it or something. I don't know what's at bottom of that. What well, first, what are your thoughts on what makes us so quick to defend our limitations? And then second, Give me something, give me a practical practice or mindset or habit or, or something, activity that you have found helps overcome that limitations mindset. Sure. Well, I think there are several reasons, and I think we should probably discuss a few as to why people are inclined to argue for their limitations. Um, one of them is because people often think they're debating fact, but they're really debating implication. 
So you, you've probably found yourself in situations before where you find it very difficult to get someone to concede a pretty simple point. For instance, I was actually having um, a, a debate with someone yesterday, one of our practice participants. Uh, he wanted to, you know, uh, have fun debating some philosophy. And one of the questions I, I posed to him was, in order to create something new, is it necessary to imagine something different than what is in front of you? And he said he, he was very hesitant. And he says, all right, uh, I, I want you to rephrase that and explain it. And I said, OK. I said, um, in order to do something that you haven't done before, is it necessary to imagine a different outcome than what you have already experienced? And you could tell he was hesitant. And I said, you know the answer to this question, but right now you're afraid that I'm setting you up for something. You're, <laughs> you're afraid that if you give the obvious answer to the question, I'm going to whack you upside the head with some surprising truth. And he started laughing because he knew I was right. And I think we all do this sometimes. We we feel like people are walking us down a path, and if we admit what, they, what they're saying, even if they're right, we're afraid, oh my gosh, well, that might mean this. This happens in political debates all the time where people never give up points. People will never admit that a person in their camp was caught telling a lie because you're admitting to more than that. You're admitting that your entire position is wrong or we need more government or whatever it may be. And so people are debating implication when they think they're debating facts. When, whenever you tell someone of a possibility and you say you can achieve more than you realize or here's a possibility that's available for you, many people perceive an implication in that that says, well, if it's easier to overcome my problem than I thought, I must be an idiot for having this problem because I, I thought I had to struggle in this way for the past 10 years. And you're going to come along, Mr. Morehouse. You're going to come along and tell me that this thing that has been kicking my butt for the past 10 years, making my life miserable, that I can just solve that in, in 20 minutes? Well, well, that must mean I'm an idiot. That must mean that I, I've done everything wrong. What does that say about me? And I often find that you can get people to open up to new ideas a lot more if you first affirm their experience of the problem and help them understand that you can identify with the fact that, hey, I struggled with that for 15 years as well. It took me five years to realize this as well. Just because the solution is easy doesn't mean you're stupid for having struggled with the problem for a really long time. And I genuinely believe that in at least half the cases where people argue for their limitations, they're not arguing for their limitations. They're, they're resisting the perceived implication that they're stupid for struggling with something that you're trying to come along and easily solve. That's a great point. And that's that's very powerful in sales and marketing and persuasion, like we've talked about before, to if you start from a point of let me tell you why you're an idiot, or let me tell you why every past decision you've made has been dumb, right? And which is the implication in saying you need to choose this instead of the thing you were going to choose. Instead of arguing from there, arguing from a point of, let me tell you why you're right. You know, use the headphones example instead of, oh my gosh, you've been going about it all wrong. Why would you buy $10 headphones over and over again? You should buy this expensive one and then you'll never have to buy them again. That might work, but that's kind of a, you're an idiot, let me save you. If instead you approach it, oh, I absolutely know what you mean. I mean, why would you want to waste money if your headphones are always getting lost? That's 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 a great that's great logic. You know, have you ever thought about headphones that maybe won't get lost as easily? Like that's immediately saying you're right. And because you're right, 
you should consider this. It's right in line with what you're already trying to do versus you're an idiot. You should consider this instead. I think that's really powerful. How to go from zero to a startup job in nine months. You don't need to jump through hoops or blast out resumes. You can start today. Praxis combines a three-month professional boot camp with a six-month paid apprenticeship at a startup that leads directly to a full-time job. Startups aren't just for coders. Sales, marketing, operations... Even if you're not sure what you're interested in, Praxis places you with a dynamic, growing company where you do work you love, become part of a team, and make a difference. Praxis is tailored to your goals and your interests. Coaching sessions, group discussions with your peers, skills training, and a portfolio of projects along with the apprenticeship create a powerful combination of real-world experience and intensive learning. We are relentlessly committed to helping you discover and do what makes you come alive. We don't just prepare you for a job, we actually give you one. No degree is required to get started on your career. Whether you're an ambitious go-getter right out of high school, a creative thinker who's bored in college, or a college grad looking for the next step, discover Praxis. Great jobs are waiting. Are you ready? And, and if you think about it too, sometimes when when you have an insight that's so obvious to you, you can become really far removed from knowing what it's like to struggle with that problem, even if you did struggle with it in the past. So you and I sometimes have conversations about not knowing what we don't know. You and I were both recently asked a question by someone who said, Isaac, I hear everything you're saying about creating value and going beyond the job description, but I'm working at a job where I'm only going to be there for two more months. Is it worth it for me to do that? And you would have never addressed that in, in your talk had the question not been raised because you didn't know that was something to be known because it's been a very long time since you've struggled with that idea. Once upon a time, you had to learn that, but it's been a very long time since you've struggled with that. And sometimes when things are so obvious to us, we can express ideas in a way that kind of has this attitude that says, oh man, I just I just don't understand how people can overlook the opportunities that are right in front of them, man. I mean, it trips me out to just watch people talk themselves out of amazing possibilities. It's it's right there. And then when people hear, hear others with solutions talk like that, it, it makes them feel like there's a risk involved with conceding that they're right. If I, if I admit that you're correct, then that means you're gonna, you know, you're gonna really bash me, or, or you're you're really gonna take it hard on me. And, and this is why I feel like it's not a requirement. You are free to talk to people however you want to talk to people. But this is why I always always say if if you're interested in not just being right, 
But if you're interested in influencing people to engage in constructive and creative behavior, I think it's always good to speak in a way so that when people listen to you, they feel like you're fighting for their possibilities. Mm. So when people are inclined to argue for their limitations, when you're talking to them, they ought to feel like, man, this person isn't just bringing the truth, but they want me to know the truth because they're on my side. They want me to win. They want me to get what I want. They want me to get better. And they're more likely to be receptive, you know? I think it increases the value too of keeping yourself close to your own eureka moment, not letting it slip too far into memory, remembering what it felt like to first understand something and kind of stay close to the experience of a new learner, of someone who's got that light bulb, that excitement. Because the further away you get removed, the harder it is to relate. And, and you can almost be more impatient with people who are in the exact same position you were in. I mean, I see it kind of like it's a way of seeing more than it is a kind of knowledge. So, you know, have you ever seen those optical illusions where it's like, you know, can you see the, or whatever, where's Waldo? Or can you see the 3d image in this picture? Or, you know, do you see the vase or the two faces? We've all had those where you're looking at it and you're like, I don't see it. I don't see it. And you're really frustrated. Then as soon as you see it once, boom, you can never unsee it. Now you can look at that picture and see it instantly anytime you want to. And then, and, and you'll notice this with kids. They're all frustrated. Once they get it and figure it out, now the next kid to come along who's like, where is it? It's not there. I swear there isn't one. They're like super impatient with them. They're like, how could you not see it, you idiot? Even though five minutes before they were in the exact same position because it's super easy once you have the knowledge and the way of seeing the world, you've had that eureka moment. Now you're a different person. Now you're a person who sees the world this way. And it's kind of hard to like, remember what it was like when you weren't that person, even though it might not have been that long ago. And so I think kind of remembering what it felt like the first time your viewpoint changed and the first time you saw everything differently and staying close to that feeling is really helpful in trying to help others have the same experience. Now, one practical tool that I think is very useful and it's extremely simple, but in, in, in practice, it can, it can be a challenge to get used to is the exercise of taking statements and transforming them into questions without altering the content. So write down a list of things that you don't believe you can do or a list of things about your life that you don't like and take every one of those propositions and rewrite them as questions. So for instance, if you say something like, um, I can't own a business at age 17, Instead of making that statement, say, how can I own a business at age 17? Or instead of saying, I can't work two jobs when I have four kids, how can I work two jobs when I have four kids? I had a conversation recently with someone who uh, said they're passionate about classical music, but there really isn't a big market for classical music and it's, it's virtually impossible to make a living singing classical if you don't have a big name. So the conclusion was, I can't make a living doing classical music because I don't have a big name. And so I, I said to that person, I said, all right, so what you've done is you've made a statement and that statement tells me the way it is. You have just defined reality. And since you've given me a statement, there's nothing I can really do about that. There's nothing that you can really do about that. You have exchanged power for knowledge. You know mm -hmm. that reality is set up in such a way that you can't make a living as a classical singer um, without being famous. Now what I want you to do 
is I want you to let go of your claim to knowledge and I want you to take that and I want you to reframe it as a question and ask yourself, how can I make a living doing classical music um, without being famous? And, and I said, I just want you to tell me how does it feel to ask that question? And he says, you know, it feels very different when I ask that question because I immediately wanted to go to Google and type the question in. And, and I said, do you see how radical of a difference that is? When you made the statement about what you can't do, you shut it down and it was over. But when you presented it as a question, you immediately had an idea, however small it was, you immediately had an idea for something you could do to get more information. Questions open you up, statements close you down. And when you turn your objections and your complaints into questions, it, it actually opens you up to a world of possibility and it it literally makes your brain work in a different way. This is Robert, this is why Robert Kiyosaki says, never, never, ever ask, can I do X? Always put a how before it. Instead of asking, can I do X? Ask, how can I do X? So if you have a legitimate objection, and I actually think many objections are good, many objections are valid. So I might say something like, well, Isaac, that doesn't work for me because I'm older than you. That doesn't work for me because I don't have family. That doesn't work for me because I have a, you know, a, a different background. There, there are things in this world that truly are different based on factors like how old you are or how many children you have or what kind of neighborhood you live in, what kind of income you have. But, but it's not merely pointing out the difference. It's pointing out that difference not as an objection but as a way of figuring out how you're going to apply insight to your unique path. So the question would always be, all right, Isaac, I see what you're saying. That sounds awesome. I want to believe that. Here's what's different about my situation. How can I do that as someone without kids? How can I do that as someone that's living, you know, how can I do that on the West Coast? How yeah. can I do that at age 40 or whatever it might be? And, well, and, and it's amazing. You'll see the answers that you find when you do that. You know, it's amazing how these things tend to resolve themselves when you can just get somebody to translate it into a question. I, I love the phrase you just used there, trading your power for information. When it's a possibility, when it's a question, that's empowering. The minute you shut it down and turn the question into a conclusion, now you've, you've put constraints, you've automatically limited yourself, you've closed down the possibilities, you, maybe you have more information. This is not possible, but you've limited your, your power. And I, I think... Um, you know, I think we, we run into this a lot with people say applying for Praxis will say things like, well, I can't move to a new city. Do you have a business partner in my city? Now we usually do have a business partner in most cities or we can get one, but we almost always say, why, why not? Why can't you move to a new city? And then they'll sort of be like, well, and almost just the act of asking the question itself, it'll start to unravel. They'll be like, well, I mean, I kind of want to be here because I think this is valuable. This is valuable. We'll say, what if there was a place where those things could be even more valuable or you could get something else? Well, I mean, I guess that would be a possibility if the cost of living was low enough, whatever else. So you can move to a new city. You just need certain conditions to be met. Yeah, I guess that's true, right? You can usually always unravel these firm conclusions. And I think even if you arrive at the same end result that you're not going to pursue a particular path, now you are the reason why. Now it's your choice. You're not off the hook. You're not a victim. You can't say, well, what I really love is classical music, but unfortunately there's no money to be made in classical music. And then it's just, you're a victim. You would love to be doing that, but you can't do it. You can't have a good life because the world won't let you. But if you say, how can you make money in classical music? And you really pursue it and you pursue all the avenues and looking at how you could, 
and you come up with five different ways that you can make money at classical music. And you say, based on the abilities I have and what I know about the market, this is probably how much I would reasonably make if I pursued these ways of making money in classical music. And given my lifestyle choices, I want a higher standard of living than that. Therefore, I'm not willing to pursue making money off of my interest in classical music because it doesn't meet enough of my other preferences. Now you're in the driver's seat. Now you're not bitter at the world. Now you chose it for a reason. You said, yes, I know you can make money off of classical music, but I have a preference for a higher standard of living than that which I would likely obtain making money in the following ways with classical music. So I'm going to keep that as a hobby and I'm going to do this instead. You might arrive at that conclusion, but now you know you had a reason for it. It's you choosing. The world's not happening to you. So turning those conclusions into questions, that's a really powerful exercise. You know, another exercise I encourage people to do is when they find themselves making statements of the order, I can't do X, is to ask themselves the following two questions. Number one, do I want to do X? Because if you don't want to do X, then it doesn't matter that you can't do it. If you don't want to do it, the conversation's over, right? In fact, I don't want to do X is far more important than I can't do X. Um, uh, so if, now, if the answer to that question is yes, I want to do X, then okay, we know since you already believe you can't do X, we always can come back to that. But since you want to do X, let's take the exercise one step further to explore some possibilities here. Ask yourself the following question. What would I need to believe about myself in order for X to be possible? You know, and, and, and that's a question that, that causes you to kind of probe a little bit. What, what would I need to believe in order for X to be possible? That's another thing that directs you down the path of solutions. I truly think we underestimate the power of questions. In ancient cultures, they did not measure intelligence by the kinds of statements you made, but rather by the quality of questions that you ask. And maybe we're losing sight of this because we live in the age of why wasn't I consulted? You know, we live in the age where we're just so accustomed to having an opinion about everything and we're just constantly mad at everybody for creating what they create without consulting us first. <laughs> but but maybe that's why we've gotten away from this. But I, I just had a conversation yesterday where someone expressed a creative challenge to me and I said, have you tried this? And they said, oh, I, I know that won't work. Now, I could have taken their word for it. I could have said, okay, well, uh, let's see what else we can come up with. Or I could have been afraid to be pushy and preachy and disrespectful and been like, uh, I think I can solve their problem, but I don't want to push. But I, I simply affirmed them and I said, okay, I understand. I get that. Um, now, why is it that you think that, that that won't work? I'm just curious. And they said, oh, uh, she won't. She would never listen to that. And, and I said, now, do you think it's because she would take it as disrespect or she? Yeah, th that's exactly it. Now, would it help you if I had a way of communicating that that wouldn't sound disrespectful? In fact, that might sound more respectful. And they say, yeah, I mean, uh, I'd be open to that. OK, would you be willing to sort of explore a couple of ways together that this could be phrased? And they say, yeah. And we did it and we achieved the goal. And I got there not because I had the right answer. I got there because I had the right questions. In fact, my information didn't even matter until my questions led me to the knowledge that I needed because all I knew was that this wouldn't work, but I had no understanding why, and my questions gave me that understanding, and once I knew why, it was pretty easy to deal with. This is why you uh, 
coach all of our advisors at Praxis on their coaching sessions because when you were laying that scenario out to me, my immediate thought was when you said, have you tried this? And the person said, that wouldn't work. I would have responded, wait, wait, wait. I didn't ask if it would work. I asked if you tried it. Have you tried it? And they'd be like, well, no, but it wouldn't work. I didn't ask that. Have you tried it? That's how, that's the route I was ready to go down. I was getting all hyped up. And then you just like diffused it and like made them come around to seeing their possibility in a totally non-confrontational way. And I almost, I almost was disappointed, but I also marvel at the results that you get. So that's why you're coaching and I'm not. Dude, you want to know who I learned to coach from? Phil Jackson. No, Columbo. Columbo? Columbo. That old show, that old, guy, that old detective? Yeah, man. Now, I'm not that old, but I am that old. So my, I grew up, <laughs> my, my parents my parents would watch Columbo. I could totally see your dad watching Columbo. He got oh, him. Dude. He got him, Doc. <laughs> yeah, yes, totally. That exact phrase. But what was great about Columbo is he would always go uh, investigate these guys, and he would have the evidence. He would know that he's talking to the murderer, and all he would need was the confession. And he'd go in, and he'd say, uh, so, uh, sir, uh, you know, I, I've got some, uh, I know this is crazy, but I've got this uh, evidence here that seems to uh, put you at the place of the murder at exactly the time that it happened. And the guy would say, well, it wasn't me, and that's a total lie, because I was clearly with my wife at dinner, and I've got the receipts to prove it. And Columbo would say, I, I totally got it. I'm so sorry. I didn't even mean to bother you. That was really stupid. And he'd head towards the door, and then he'd stop right before walking out and be like, oh, um, by the way, uh, I'm, I'm trying to find the uh, trying to find the place, the uh, coffee shop, or uh, that that's supposed to be uh, somewhere in the neighborhood. And the guy would be, like, "Oh yeah, it's just over there. You got to go this way and that way." And Columbo would and then Columbo would catch him and be like, "Aha! You wouldn't have that information unless you were the murderer." And the guy would be like, "Caught." But whenever people objected to him, he never said, "You're lying. I've got the evidence to prove you wrong." He would just say, "I get it." That makes perfect sense. I, I, I hear exactly what you're saying. Um, here's just one more question for you. You know, um, Socrates practiced that same thing, man, in uh, the trial and, and, and death of Socrates and Plato's work. You can see the power of that Socratic method. And the Socratic method isn't just something that you apply to other people when you're trying to get them to question their beliefs. It's something that you apply to yourself. The Socratic method is one of the most powerful techniques you can use to open up your sense of possibility. Identify your beliefs. Ask yourself why you believe that. Ask yourself if there is a counterexample. See if you can find a counterexample and ask you what would need to be true in order for that to be possible. What would I need to believe in order for that to be possible? What would I need to change in order for that to be possible? So I guess I was even underestimating the brilliance of Harry Carey, uh, Will Ferrell as Harry Carey in those SNL sketches, because that's exactly what he always does. I got a question for you. Just hit, <laughs> hits him with random questions. Um, There's hey, no connection there to anything. That was a total stretch. Hey, the Cubs are always relevant. Hey, <laughs> let's go down. Let's go down this path for a minute. Going back to the uh, topic. Where are you of leading me? Where are you taking me? <laughs> oh, wait, real quick, real quick. I just had yeah, to yeah. throw in one quick beef I had with something that you said. You know this is one of my pet peeves. What's up? Any argument that starts to take me down the path of things used to be better than they are. I'm always very, very wary and skeptical of that. And you wait, kind did of I say implied that? we I say that? back in ancient times, people valued intelligence. They measured it by the questions people asked. But now we're no, so no, no. dumb and unenlightened that in this age of <laughs> information, people have lost that. Like there's <laughs> the way that we think may be different, but I'm always very skeptical of going down the things used to be better and more enlightened and more wonderful route. 
So all right, okay. all right. I just had to pick a little bone with you. Well, I got to push back on that because if you heard it that way, somebody else probably heard it that way. So it would behoove me to clarify. Now, this would be a prime example of debating the implication rather than the statement itself. Because yes. w what I said was – I didn't like where that was starting to take us to the good old days before yeah, yeah, technology yeah. – and, and some people might take what I said and use it for that, which I which I don't want to happen. So let me clarify. So 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 the claim is we live in an era where we are more accustomed to having an opinion and having a voice than ever before. And in some ways that might make us more inclined to be more on the pontificating side of things rather than on the inquiring side of things. Now, I think it's OK to talk about things that might be more difficult for this generation or are different for this generation without implying a value judgment that says one way is better than another. So mm. there are real problems that exist for us today, real disadvantages that exist for us today because of technologies like having a smartphone. We are actually stressed out in ways that I don't think ancient cultures were stressed out, but that doesn't mean life is overall better for them. That doesn't mean I want to go back. I think overall the improvements outweigh the disadvantages, but there certainly are new challenges that we have to be aware of that we have to either compensate for or overcome because of some of these awesome things that we have today. I mean, take privacy, for instance. This is now much more of a rare commodity than it's ever been at any point in history. And we have to be careful. We have to be cautious. We have to be uh, prudent in ways that um, I don't think people 100 years ago had to worry about as much. Doesn't mean yeah, that, that life was better then. Yeah, that's a great clarification. And I assume you meant as much that there are, there are challenges now that are new because of the world that we live in. Um, because of the very things that have made this world in many ways better than it once was, they have also introduced new types of challenges that humans previously didn't have to. I, I figured you meant as much. I just I always start to to bristle a little bit when I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so so what path did you want to take me down next? You said you were going to take me somewhere. I'm getting scared. No, no. <laughs> I'm scared of the implications. What, what, what am I agreeing to? Well, you know, I, I think another good thing to talk about with this uh, notion of arguing for your limitations is that we aren't always honest with ourselves about what we want, and we aren't always aware of what we want. And there's a lot of social pressure to be the kind of person who wants certain types of things or to be seen as someone who wants certain types of things. And this can lead to a lot of inward confusion where we become mixed up about what we want. So I had a friend many years ago who constantly complained about the lack of good guys, right? And, and, and this friend of mine always said, I want this kind of guy and there are, are never any kind of guys like this. But the guy, the kind of guy that she always dated fit a pretty predictable prototype and it was certainly not anything like the kind of good guy that she said she wanted. And one day she was cl complaining to me about this, and I said to her, I go, I'm going to take a chance on something here, and you tell me if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, just tell me, and I'll drop this point. But I know that you always say that you want this kind of guy, this whatever you're describing as a good guy, but every single guy you've talked to me about that you've dated, they all seem to have these common qualities, and it seems to me that those are the kind of qualities that you really like. It seems to me that you like a guy that's kind of edgy in this way, that's risky and unpredictable in this way. And I feel like you're saying that you want this other kind of guy because you feel like 
you'll come off as a more respectable person. And because of the social pressure that a lot of people put on women to say they want a certain kind of guy. But I honestly think you'd be bored with that kind of guy. You tell me if I'm wrong. And right there in front of my face, she had an epiphany. And she said, oh, my God, you're right. Now, I've been wrong a lot of times about a lot of things. And I've, I've, I've you know, uh, given oh, people know. assessments and, and people said, nope, you're way off. But this was one moment where she had an epiphany. She says, oh, my God. You're absolutely right. And and I got that joke, by the way, but I'm just too serious. No, you, I don't, didn't, you didn't even laugh. I'm trying to give, take a little right. dig at you. No wonder my mom thinks I'm mean right. to you. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is, you're always being mean. But, but I think this is not an uncommon thing. That's one example, but it plays out across different genders, different personality types where we find ourselves arguing for things that we don't really even believe because we're not very clear and honest with ourselves about what it is we want. And a lot of these arguments cease when we can just admit that, hey, even though I'm in a situation that I can make a lot of complaints about, when I weigh the cost and benefits, I'd rather have this than something else. Yeah, and I think there are a couple, like maybe two main reasons that we get caught doing that. One is I want to get the benefits that I that I perceive people who are like this get. So, oh, you know, I want to, I want to be an artist, but maybe that you really don't want to be an artist when it comes to what a professional artist actually does. Maybe you perceive the benefits that professional artists get as something you would like. You like the way that they're treated or respected or whatever, or, you know, you, you want to be perceived as the type of person who cares greatly about a particular issue. You don't actually want to get involved and do something about that. And that's not really your passion, but you would like to be perceived as that. So that's one of the reasons I think that we're often claiming to want things that we maybe don't want and we're confused about it. I think the other though, is that we grow and we change and our self knowledge doesn't keep up with our self evolution. You have to continually revisit who you are today. Cause it's a little different than who you were yesterday. And even if you got all this great self-knowledge and understood yourself yesterday, you're going to change a little bit tomorrow. And then you're going to have to re get, get reacquainted with that. And so you might be the kind of person, you know, I found this with myself over the years. I'm an extrovert by every personality test I've ever taken. I'm always the exact same ENTJ have been since I was little. And so early on when I was young, I knew I always wanted to be around the action. I want to be where the party is. I, I can never go to sleep if other people are up having fun. I want, I get energized by being with people, etc. And over time that's changed. I'm still a, a, an extrovert based on sort of those personality indicator definitions, but in terms of wanting to be where the action is and getting energized by always being out and about that's changed to where now that drains me. And I'd rather kind of just like be home, like reading, watching Netflix with my wife and I get tired. I need a ton of recovery time after I go out and give a talk somewhere at an event. I didn't used to need that. And it took me a long time to realize I had become a different person because I had gotten so accustomed to not only being that person, but always talking about how I was that person. Oh, I always get charged up. I want to be at the parties. I want to be the life of the event. I want to be everywhere. And that was truly who I was. But I started to change almost unbeknownst to myself. And all of a sudden, I just found myself more and more tired, less and less happy, starting to feel stressed by this stuff. And it was because not only had I changed, but I was maintaining this belief about who I was and telling people who I was that was not accurate with who I had become. And I had to readjust that. I mean, it happens in careers. You grow up, you always want to be a lawyer. And all of a sudden, you don't anymore. And you haven't for five years 
but it took you that long to realize that you're not the person you used to be. And that can be a hard adjustment to make. So that continual self-reflection and self-knowledge, that's why that's the, the two pillars of, of the praxis experience of, of how we do what we do, which is help young people discover and do what makes them come alive is real world experience, putting them in a context where they're learning from experience and self-reflection continually coming back to understand themselves better, to look at these contexts. Okay, I was doing this. How did that make me feel? Why did it make me feel that way? What does that mean about me? What kind of person am I? Where am I in my zone? How can I find that more? That self-reflection is so important because you might have it completely dialed in one day. A year later, you could be someone whose preferences have changed. And if you haven't kept up with that in your knowledge of yourself, you're going to find yourself arguing for things that you don't actually want. You know, I, I always say, follow your dreams, but don't forget to let your dreams follow you. You know, the person that you are at the moment of conceiving a dream is radically different from the person you become as a result of pursuing that dream. It is impossible to go after something you want without being transformed by the very pursuit of it. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's like I, I, I have never stopped pursuing my dream even though I stopped trying to be a professional baseball player and a fighter pilot and a politician and at almost everything else, because those were temporary incarnations of a deeper dream that I'm constantly trying to discover and figure out how does pursuing this dream play out right now at this phase in my life? What does it look like? Okay. I'm going to have to go master this in order to chase that dream, the next step. And those things might change, but I've never given up on chasing that dream of, of, of going after what gives me meaning and fulfillment, even though those particular manifestations or incarnations of that at different time periods have changed. I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind, that those can both be true at the same time. You can never give up on your dream while deliberately quitting any version of pursuing it that starts to make you unhappy and starts to actually move you away from the deeper dream. Oh, man. I mean, this is a really good point for a lot of young people out there, a lot of older people, too. There is a distinction between selling out and evolving. And a lot of people don't give themselves permission to evolve because they're afraid of selling out. They see they, they hold themselves hostage to dreams that no longer reflect who they are. I had a friend that um, I went to school with. He was a roommate of mine, and he was a jazz musician, really brilliant guy, really great musician. His name was Miles Davis. His name that's was Miles how, that's Davis. That's how old you are. <laughs> Back when I was in school with Miles. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and this guy, he had a full ride, and one summer, he watched the movie Contact, starring Jodie Foster, and it's based on a novel by Carl Sagan. He was so moved by that film that he spent the summer just reading all of Carl Sagan's books, and he fell in love with astro with astronomy over a summer. I mean, it was like you almost oh my said astrology, didn't you? Because <laughs> you're like they're basically the same. <laughs> That's horrible, man. That's horrible. I won't even defend myself. But uh, <laughs> but. That summer, it, he had a moment where it was like, oh, my gosh, this subject exists and it goes this deep. When the next school year started, he left and transferred schools. He, dr he dropped his uh, full ride scholarship in music and left his dream to become a jazz musician behind. And he went to go study astrophysics. And he is a physicist today. 
Now, we always hear about the person who starts off doing something <laughs> academic or corporate and then they go pursue something artistic. But we don't talk a lot about the people that are artistic and they go do something that seems to be academic or corporate or what have you. But you see this kind of thing happen a lot where someone is in Hollywood aspiring to be a filmmaker or hey, an actor. Hey, let, let's, let's, not, let's not distance it. This was you, man. I mean, you went to Hollywood to be an actor. And, Absolutely. And, you, and, and before that... You were in theater. You wanted to be Brian McKnight, you know, and Absolutely. I don't think there's anything about you that's a sellout or a failure. I remember the moment when you were like, you're out there in Hollywood and you're doing some auditions and you had gotten an agent and you were, you know, working on the side and trying to get your acting thing on. And, and you were like, I don't think I properly defined it. I thought acting was it, but now I think it's more on the production side. Now it's almost more on the business side of filmmaking. That's really fascinating. I really want to go in that direction. And then you were like, I want to, I want to actually change the industry as a whole through this startup. And you were working on like a, a film industry um, startup, a sort of basically before it's time. It's going to happen, but you guys were just too early. Um, you know, a collaboration platform for various filmmakers and artists. And none of those things did I see TK abandoning his pursuit to, 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 to reach his dream. It was you letting that dream evolve. And we always used to joke about how, you know, you could make a billion dollars and be the most, you know, successful movie producer. In <laughs> but if you had never acted in a movie and no one ever saw you on TV, you go back home and your family would be like, so that acting thing never really worked out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, totally. Dude, I will never, ever do anything that is more important than being on are you smarter than the fifth grader that that yeah. will always be what i remember it for <laughs> no when i when i 12 years old my little league team won the world series and i pitched and played second base in that game i had a couple hits couple rbis that was pretty much it that was like the closest right. i ever got to my baseball dream we, we drove to dairy queen afterwards and montel g's this is how you do it was playing on the i'll never <laughs> forget it dude that was that was it that was the achievement and then it was like um all right i guess I guess my baseball dream stopped there. Uh, I guess I've failed, you know, but yeah. Oh, oh man, <laughs> when I talk to people back home, I'm like, I tell them about Praxis and they kind of get a worried look and it's like, oh, okay, yeah. So um, have have you done any more of those game shows since, uh, <laughs> you know, are you smarter than a fifth grader? Like, have you stayed in touch with Jeff Foxworthy or anything? And no, I, I haven't, you know, but then I, I like try to pivot. But no, man, I'm having so much fun and I'm doing exactly what I love. Yeah, but you, you moved out there for acting, all right? <laughs> it's just like, yeah, okay, I, I, I contradict myself. I contain multitudes. But no, so <laughs> sorry, go ahead. This is a perfect example of how the pursuit of a dream is so radically different from the contemplation of a dream. Because one of the things that happened when I first moved here is I, I lived with Paige Kennedy, who is a working actor here. He's he played the character U Turn on Weeds. He's been in the show Blue Mountain State. He's been in several movies. He makes his living as an actor. We were roommates for five years. And when I first moved out here, I stayed with him. Literally from the first day I got there, I had an unreal Hollywood experience. This guy would take me to the set of television shows and movies, and I met multiple celebrities. I'm talking about like Emmy Award winning celebrities, Academy Award winning celebrities in just my first week of living in LA. Um, oh, this guy So much so that we would always come up with challenges where it'd be like, okay, this week your challenge is to get, uh, you know, a current box office star into a conversation about, you know, metaphysics or something. And you'd be like, dude, I met Omar Epps at a party and we, we talked about yes. philosophy. Yes. <laughs> yes, Omar Epps and I literally had like an hour long philosophy conversation. And, and what's funny, 
what's funny is I was talking to his personal assistant. I didn't know anybody there, and it's all these celebrities there, and, and it kind of felt a little awkward. So I'm standing by myself, and Omar Epps, a, a woman that happened to be his assistant, she was so nice, and she was like, so who are you here with? And we start talking, and her and I have this interesting discussion, and I, I bring up um, a guy named Osho, and she says, oh my gosh, you know Osho? And I say, yeah. And she says, hold up. And Omar Epps is in the conversation. And she says, Omar, Omar. And, and he, he looks kind of like, hey, you're interrupting. And she says, he knows Osho. And then he's and like, he, I'm sorry, Mr. President. This is going to have to wait. And he comes over. <laughs> he looks at me. He goes, you know Osho? <laughs> and I said, Osho is the Easter philosopher, by the way. Um, and, and I say, yeah. And he says, hey, hold up, man. And he comes over to me and he sits next to me and he's like, hey, man. And we just start talking and we go for like an hour. And, and the dude was just entirely cool. So you and I would make these kinds of bets because I would go to red carpet events and have all these experiences. But w among those many experiences of meeting people, I had the awesome opportunity to meet a lot of screenwriters, a lot of film producers, and a lot of executives, executives, and I spent more time around those people, and they helped me understand the behind-the-scenes business aspect. And with all genuineness, I say being around those kinds of people made me fall in love with the business side of the arts in a way that was never interesting to me. Now, I'm sure if the people I were hanging around with were actors, it might have had a different effect. But I was hanging around a bunch of producers, and I fell in love with the business side of things. And that led me down a path that seamlessly put me in the position where I am now. And at no point, even though I'm pursuing something that is radically different from being an actor, I'm not going to McDonald's commercials anymore, not going to auditions. At no point did I ever feel like I'm going to stop doing X. I'm going to stop pursuing my dream. At no point did I ever feel like that. I still feel internally as if I'm doing the same thing. It's just that my my level of specificity is much more refined. So when are you going to be on another game show? <laughs> <laughs> Here's my best audition story, by the way. So I get a call from my agent who says, uh, we got an audition for you. It's a commercial. Um, it's, a, it's a NASCAR commercial. And I'm like, oh, okay, hey man, let's do it, let's do it, right? <laughs> that uh, only <laughs> makes me laugh so much. I must be racist. Yeah, it's I'm racist. like, <laughs> I'm like, the work is the work, right? As long as I'm, <laughs> so I show up at the audition and I sign in, and every single person at this audition is a heavier set white guy with a beard and a flannel, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, just like a skinny brother walking in with a, you know, a polo on and I don't have any beard. I'm clean shaven. And I look around, I'm like, man, I must, I must be at the wrong place. And I, I go up to the guy, goes, this is the uh, NASCAR commercial. Right. And he says, yep. And I go, okay. And he says, yeah, just sit over there and we'll call you. Not another black person walked in. Everybody that walked in was a heavier set white dude with a beard. And I was just like, man, like how did, how did I get here? Why, why am I at this audition? And when I walked in, the people that were there, they all started laughing. They were like, oh, this is great. This is great. All right, man. Let's see what you got. And I'm like, hey, I'm your NASCAR guy. Let's do this. <laughs> I, I, I didn't get the part, but we all had a good laugh. And to this day, I'm not sure what happened. I was too scared to ask my agent why they sent me to that audition. But what, maybe, maybe one of these days, the dots will connect looking backwards. That is absolutely amazing. I love it. I'm Your, your agent was probably like, you know, Oh, TK, TK, I got to get him something. Oh, here's one. Uh, 
middle-aged, heavy-set, bearded <laughs> white man needed. Um, yeah, you know what? TK could probably do that. <laughs> you know, my agent was like, hey, you know what? They put Denzel in Philadelphia. No, Let's that's exactly right. He listened to this podcast episode. Wait a minute. He's a time traveler. Somehow he listened to this episode and he was like, if if you can violate the rules, so can I. I love it. Hey, dude, I think that's a good place to wrap up for today. What um, What's a recommendation you got for us? Oh, man, I'm going to recommend the book that we co-wrote together, Freedom Without Permission. I, it's been a long time since we've talked about it. We've got a lot of new listeners, different demographics listening to us. Go check out a book written by Isaac Morehouse, myself, Zach Slayback, and Christopher Nelson. It's a book that makes a really solid case for how you can live a freer life without relying on politics. With the election coming up, I think this kind of message is sorely needed. I love it. I'm going to recommend, and TK, this recommendation is really just for you because I assume all normal people have already seen this. So you've got to watch it. Hoosiers. You must watch the movie <laughs> Hoosiers. My wife is always like, why do you like that so much? And quote it. It's so depressing. No, Hoosiers is amazing. It's a great sports movie. A lot of sports movies are just lame. Hoosiers is like the sports movie with the, with the exception, of course, of Rocky being the greatest ever. But go check it out. You got it, man. Live from the Beehive, we're out. We're out. Take it easy. Hey, if you're a fan of the show, do me a huge favor. Go to iTunes, give it a rating or a review. A rating is only a simple click of a button, or if you're on your phone, a tap of a finger. And it will help people find the show a lot easier. And if you have a little extra time, write a review. What you think about the show? Honest opinion. That stuff goes a long way in giving more exposure to the podcast. What do you get out of all of it? You get the pleasure of knowing that as more people start listening, you get to say, I was there first. <laughs>